Good morning or good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I am very pleased that today three of the authors of the new Bridges to Health and Healthcare book have come together to give some further information about this growing sector. The healthcare obviously is a large part of many conversations throughout the U.S. as uh, different laws are coming down the pike and different ways of looking at healthcare. So I just want to say uh, thank you again to Terry, Lucy, and Jan, and they will be sharing different parts of today's presentation with us. I do want to just begin by having uh, Terry start by talking about why the book was written. Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon. I'm Terry Drucy Smith. Um, we've been at uh, Bridges Out of Poverty. It was first published in 2000, so for about 14 years. And as we've worked with communities in the health sector within those communities in past years, we've had several health institutions use Bridges Out of Poverty to lower costs and to improve quality care, especially for people in populations at risk of poor health outcomes. And we saw immediately that there were ongoing and as well as emerging challenges for the health sector and that these challenges are forcing new thinking and innovation. And um, professionals such as Kelly Valenti, who is at Ellis Medical uh, Center, it's connected in New York, um, were saying that adding bridges to new thinking and designs help their teams and help their teams see what they did every day in new ways. And bridges was a lens or is a lens you can add on to your current strategies that make them even more effective, as well as perhaps giving new insight on adding an economic class lens to cultural competency models. So the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation survey, this was a survey of physicians and it illustrates how bridges out of poverty um, might make a difference. Um, so four in five physicians were saying not only do they want to write prescriptions for medical conditions, but also for the social needs of their patients. And if they could write those prescriptions, you know, that the idea is that there are so many missing resources in poverty. Uh, these are the prescriptions, um, you know, for transportation, for nutrition, for housing, for um, health programs and so forth that uh, physicians wish uh, that their patients had these um, resources. I think that uh, what Bridges helps us to understand is there is a poverty of condition and that in poverty so many basic resources are missing and Bridges offers models that assist groups to recognize and to fine tune the concrete experience of poverty in your community. Most of us are aware of that experience to some degree, but, but do we really understand what does that experience mean to health outcomes? to uh, access and availability of services. Six area chart. Um, here, here we have the access, the availability of service, the quality of care, and the primary goal of reducing healthcare costs. So many healthcare providers are collaborating with other sectors to provide these missing resources such as transportation and are bar barriers to treatment compliance. And, the Bridges model allows communities to become very skilled at these community collaborations um, through a result-driven collective impact process within the community. For example, at Ellis Medical, some community partners that link patients to services such as housing, transportation, et cetera, 
are housed right in the medical home and the primary or the primary care center at that institution at, at Ellis. So, what another thing that uh, I have been thinking about in the last few days is what might be missing for many providers and public health initiatives is that this very experience of poverty over generations has had a powerful impact on how individuals solve problems in under-resourced environments. Poverty is much more than a lack of nutrition and transportation and stable housing. Those external resources that are so apparent, you may have noticed that health might not always be in the forefront of your patient's focus. You may have noticed that there seems to be a different way of approaching life when we are in poverty for long periods of time. So bridges can help us to increase our relationships and mutual respect and the information flow we have between patients who identify with that nowness of life in poverty. So this book offers a lens that we can use to reach those groups whose experience is outside the middle-class standard of life. So if you notice, we have added two areas of research uh, to this chart. One is efficacy. How do we build capacity to make comprehensive change at the individual, the institutional, and the community and policy level? And the other is communication. And that is a piece not just about, you know, patient literacy or how do we, you know, which words should we use as we're explaining things, but how do we really understand what motivates someone who is in an entirely different environment and may not be motivated towards a future story? Thank you, Terry. So, Lucy, can you just to continue a little bit more on the discussion about the issues that continue to dominate the healthcare industry? Uh, yes, you know, at every level now, the discussion is around quality and cost. One of the new buzzwords is fee for quality, where it used to be fee for service. But the big question is, how do you get quality and cost at the same time? And so these discussions are going across individual, institutional, community, and policy lines. And, you know, as an individual right now, my concern might be, ah, I can opt in, but can I afford a deductible, those sorts of things. And we are even seeing people who've had wonderful insurance in the past see their deductibles increased because it's a problem for everybody. And the big problem is the cost. It's what does it cost and how do we find money to add to quality. Right. So, Terry, what are some of the challenges in, in treating under-resourced patients? You've talked a little bit about it, but can you expand on that? Well, we need to look at the mental model of poverty that's actually designed by individuals in poverty who uh, are co-investigating uh, what is life like in poverty in our communities um, so that um, relationship pie. Um, this shows, you know, just what people in poverty actually do and also you see relationships across the pie when, when our um, other resources are diminished perhaps over generations by poverty, we tend to rely on one another. Uh, sometimes you will meet patients who have uh, strong relationships, but those relationships may not actually be endorsing or supporting the treatment plan. Or you might see that sometimes your patients need relationships, but they don't have relationships. They don't have much social capital at all. Nevertheless, if you have relationships in poverty, 
it will help you survive poverty. It's a, it's a get-by strategy that we all use in our communities when we have disasters, we rely on one another. It's sort of like we go back to who we are, which are, you know, human beings who relate to one another and support one another. Um, what you see here is um, down below, you see the businesses that end up, you know, in, in the pockets of poverty in our communities that actually are predators on people in poverty. And they're actually problem-solving uh, mechanisms for folks in poverty. I mean, you use whatever it's available to you to survive. I think that the thing that strikes me as, as I've been doing um, some work with uh, health institutions is I'll ask health, uh, health groups, well, what, uh, what does health really give us? It gives us um, a longer life. It, it, we're more likely to be hired. We're more stable in our relationship. It gives us financial stability because we can work hard. It helps us to save money. Uh, it gives us stronger self-sufficiency. I mean, it, it gives us less pain and, and more energy. And I, as I look at this mental model of poverty, I, I ask my audience, what is it about health that is part of my experience here? I'm living in the future story. Not. I'm not living in the future story. I'm living more in the now. It's sometimes called the charity of the moment. And so what happens is we're typically attempting to motivate people through quality of life, uh, future story sort of ideas, and it may not really resonate with someone who is in poverty. So we have to be very skilled at understanding what exactly is meaningful to somebody in poverty in terms of health and not just say, well, everyone should be motivated by the same thing. You know, there was a, there's a judge who uses um, Bridges Out of Poverty, and, and I love her analogy. She says that when her defendant is talking to her and not making any sense to her and she's not seeing the motivation, she takes off her achievement hat, which is typically the focus, achievements, outcomes, cost, quality, those types of things in the middle-class environment. She takes that achievement hat off and puts on her relationship hat uh, so that she can hear more clearly what her defendant is actually saying. So Bridges Out of Poverty allows you some models uh, to discuss, to share uh, with your team and with your community that um, would help you engage people in poverty differently. And, you know, our view is that folks in poverty are problem solvers, and problem solvers are always at the table. So the idea that individuals and patients in poverty would also be part of your design team uh, as part of this concept. Thank you. You know, yeah, Lucy, we hear a lot that hospitals are being asked to bear the brunt of the cost of uninsured or underinsured. Is it their job to fix this problem? You know, in many communities, hospitals are the largest employers. Unfortunately, the most expensive portal for healthcare is the hospital. And so you're talking about guys who are also at this particular time not excited about bearing the brunt because uh, they're also entertaining punitive measures nowadays. You know, they get beat up and get a little money taken from them when they are not reaching uh, what they are told they're supposed to do with population health, and I'm talking about population health from the standpoint of insured groups and the things that insurers are asking them to do. But the fact of the matter is that hospitals usually in their communities are very influential 
And they are the people who can do the convening and do it effectively. People will show up when a CEO of a hospital says, let's get together and solve a problem. In our community right now, the city has had to significantly change their benefits program, a health benefits program for uh, those who have retired. It is an astronomical issue for them. And so people are, policemen are protesting and so forth. But what we saw happen was that the mayor asked the hospitals, he asked the insurers, he asked everybody to the table to talk about some alternative ways to be sure that people were not going to be left out. What Bridges has is a refined and tried system for doing that. And we're excited that we have that to offer to communities. There are bridges communities around. And so, yeah, I don't think it's unfair. I think they're being asked because they're like the big dogs sitting in the road. And they really know so much. They're so bright. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. Okay. Thank you. So, you know, Jan, I know that others, people would say, well, don't poor people want to be healthy, and why aren't they following doctor's orders? And I'm sure that someone just absolutely cringed when they heard um, that question. But the truth is that people from all economic classes often fail to follow doctor's orders. And a classic example would be people who don't complete their entire prescription of antibiotics or who don't wear their boots when they're supposed to after they've had orthopedic surgery. So as you know, our book's based on a conceptual model which at its core is based on certain values, non-judgmental communication and behaviors and relationships of mutual respect. So if we can revisit the areas of healthcare research, you can see the various things that affect people from all economic classes, that whether it's in access, availability, or cost. You can imagine that the person who is under-resourced would be more affected by any of those items that we have listed there, perhaps more so than people in other economic classes. We know that illness and disease are not respecters of class, so by exploring the slides, we can even look at things like efficacy and communication and the frequency with which people who are under-resourced may feel that there's a lack of mutual respect within the communication, and it goes beyond just understanding the instructions, which sometimes, by the way, is difficult for patients irrespective of class. You know, many people who are very well resourced will have difficulty managing um, patient instructions, for example. Now, typically, when effective corporations, including healthcare institutions, want to fix an issue, they look at systems instead of blaming individuals. So rather than looking at the individual only for so-called non-compliant behavior, in Bridges to Health, we expand the system's view to include the entire community, not just the institution that's looking at how effectively they're managing their work. Absolutely, most poor people want to be healthy, just like people in every other economic class. And the cost, not just money, as Terry mentioned previously, we discussed those with other resources in the book of achieving health is frequently higher in those who are under-resourced than for others. And we already know that some communities are already open to that way of thinking because if you look at the conversations, for example, about food deserts, 
there's a lack of access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And so we have a growing number of community gardens to address affordability issues. So Bridges explores many things other than just the individual behavior of noncompliance. Thanks. Why, why do you think they haven't addressed it before, the healthcare system? I think that's another question that would bring health care, you know, providers cringing because, you know, <laughs> in our history, the healthcare system has a very long-standing tradition of addressing the needs of the poor, and our lens is just a bit different. Um, for Bridges, if you, if you will think about it, we are based on the third-party payer system in our country, and that started in the 1920s. And we did this as a way of helping people pay physicians and hospitals. Most of our earliest hospitals were, were begun by charitable orders. And so the history of pay, payment and regulatory policies, that block that you see there on your slide, began around the 1920s. And in the 30s, we had in Dallas, through Baylor, a system that eventually became Blue Cross. And that was a way of helping people pay their bills. Well, with the labor shortage in World War II, we created a more formalized system of employer-based health insurance because that was a way to attract people into the labor market. So then in the, by the time we got to the 20th century, we, of course, had Medicare and Medicare Advantage and all that. But with the growth of hospitals and advances in technology, more people turned to hospitals and doctors for care and costs have escalated. So we believe that applying bridges, we can improve how the system can work overall. Much of this takes place in institutions, and the institutions, the individual physician works within the practice site. The practice site is part of the practice organization, and then we have networks and affiliations. So we look a lot at institutional behavior as well as community behavior. And currently, those with few resources report greater frequency in which they may not experience the type of relationship with the institutions or with the community or with individual providers that do adversely affect outcome. And that's what we look at with Bridges. So effective healthcare change that we see from our perspective should be fairly shared by all the stakeholders within this chart. So whether it's at the individual level, groups that represent them, the private sector, the neighborhoods, communities, governments. Each one of us have to share responsibility for finding an affordable solution to healthcare reform. Great. Can you talk a little more about just expanding the access to healthcare and its, its impact on costs? Sure. You know, the impact of Affordable Care Act on costs is a hot topic. And Bridges doesn't address any specific health nation, national health reform strategy. And that's deliberate because that could change from day to day. We look more broadly at reform by any name and systems of healthcare delivery as defined in any community. Now, if anyone wants to look at ACA, probably the most bipartisan report would be found in the Kaiser Health Foundation work. So if you'll look that up, They've done great things of looking not only at healthcare growth, but the potential cost savings due to earlier intervention of a broader insured group, the um, cost for preventable disabilities, perhaps um, the effect of lost productivity among uninsured patients, 
and the extent to which we can get reliable data to support the findings, the tax expenditures by all levels of government, and the uncompensated care of healthcare providers. So it's not just any kind of health reform strategy that we have to look at at cost. We have to look at all those things and more. So our approach to cost looks at many other factors. And as you've heard throughout the conversation today, the institutional, the individual, and the community level. So, and earlier, Len asked about noncompliance, but we see everything from late for appointments to no-shows and that puzzle piece and um, providing incomplete or false information because of the relationships perhaps with the provider. In the institutional piece, we'll see things like the hours of operation, complicated forms to fill out, excessive time in the waiting room, bills that may be difficult to understand, we address those. And we look at different things in the community. What are the community assets, the housing, the education systems, the employment, the environment, the social cultural determinants. And so to offer our explanation, we would invite people to look at all pieces of the puzzle at the individual, institutional, and community levels and advocate for the necessary policy reforms, whether it's locally within our states or nationally. And although we look at different behaviors in each one of these puzzle pieces, we can apply them to things like the hospital readmission reduction program. You know, most of us who are within the healthcare environment know the impact that makes on the payment to hospitals. And so many of you on the webinar can think of other examples. So what some healthcare institutions are beginning to recognize is that if they simply want to only help people, they will fail, in particular in areas of high poverty and need. So in Bridges, we refer to a quote from an Aboriginal woman who said, if you have come to help me, you can go home again. But if you see my struggle as part of your own survival, then perhaps we can work together. And as hospitals embrace that, for the patients they serve, we believe that they can address not only the issue of cost, but more effective patient care. Thanks, Jan. As Lucy, as we think back over healthcare and healthcare in the U.S., do you think that the healthcare disparity is just too big of a problem to tackle? I think that what makes it interesting is that it's like a trifecta. There's healthcare, there's education, and there's the overall economy. And if if we were, if this were three horses in a race, uh, all of those horses are heavily burdened and very tired. But we know from a research standpoint that disparity is very real. On yesterday, I read a report that the United States spends more dollars is at the top of the list of highly developed nations in terms of how much it spends per capita on health care, something like $8,700, followed by Norway at 7,000-something. But there are other studies that turn around and talk about our outcomes, our health outcomes, as being at the bottom. Uh, and so that disparity, there's no doubt that it's big and real, Lynn. But what we're talking about with this book, is applying what we know about generational poverty, 
and now, of course, there's plenty of situational poverty. What we're talking about is applying what we know about these issues to changing and closing that gap. The slide, the search for the holy grail of quality and lower cost is on the screen now and, and refers to some of the things I just talked about. We don't propose to have all of the answers, but we do know. We know that poverty matters. And so that's what we have to focus on is what we know and knowing that we have studies that have shown that people die earlier so that there is an, a very serious impact on disproportionate care, disproportionate poverty, uh, the big gap that's there. I don't think, Lynn, that this is an optional experience for us. We have to find answers, and Bridges offers some on-the-ground answers that really engage everybody at the table who ought to be at the table. Yeah. Terry, earlier you mentioned Ellis Medical, which is uh, one of the hospitals in the U.S. that learned about Bridges and began to implement the constructs. Can you talk a little more maybe about Ellis or some of the others that are using the work and the changes that they've seen? Sure, I'd love to. You know, this is a great time to look at new ways of communicating and motivating patients uh, who um, may live in a, in a different environment or have a different sort of experience and story than, than those who have stable resources. Uh, in the case of unnecessary readmissions, you know, poverty is a contributing factor to these non-reimbursed services. And so to have an understanding of that and what motivates someone and to also have a, a process where you have someone who is um, very skilled at building relationships and mutual respect, that the information is flowing both ways, um, and that can take the time to actually use some mental models and some some planning uh, with a patient that might take uh, an extensive period of time. And of course, this might not be the physician, but it might be uh, a wellness coach, a coach the nurse, uh, transitioning nurse, a patient navigator, um, the, um, s someone along, along the continuum of services. So what they've done at Ellis uh, in order to uh, reduce unnecessary readmissions is to basically look at them uh, the number of people who are using the emergency department as primary care, which is very typical for individuals who didn't have um, insurance or who were just sort of living in the in that tyranny of the moment and you know didn't plan for a doctor's visit and just suddenly say, okay, you know, at 7 p.m. you've got an ear infection here and we're going to the emergency department. Um, if you look at at those unnecessary readmissions, I mean, this is where Ellis started, is by saying, you know, the healthcare disparities are really um, partly caused by patients not having uh, that relationship with a primary care physician. So they've been successful in moving more than 340 patients without primary care physicians uh, to an established primary care physician that's you know, housed in their, their medical home right on campus. So 
this this is the, the piece where, you know, I mean, how do you get to that point? And there are many people that are doing very many innovative things here, but the way they did it is twofold, and, and I mentioned earlier, um, they have a collective impact collaboration in their community. It is a Bridges Out of Poverty community that is used to working together uh, to build resources for individuals in poverty. So that has really assisted them. And the other piece is along the whole patient life cycle. Uh, they have embedded relationships of mutual respect. Now, they have started, uh, in a sense, with outpatient, actually, rather than inpatient. But um, this was their focus. This is the beginning, and these are the results that they've had so far. Um, and I think that, you know, they are a Bridges champion and are continuing this work. It's ongoing. Um, this is a model that was generated by Philip Duvall and uh, Sarah Gary. And it's, it illustrates how you would sit down with the patient to talk about, you know, what's, uh, what, what's actually happening with your health. Where were you in the past? Where are we at the present time? And where will we be in the future? And, you know, Phil Duvall, who wrote Getting Ahead and Just Getting By a World, is very insistent that you do not do this for a patient, but with a patient. The patient actually draws it so you can imagine how much time how many uh, motivational interviewing sort of questions occur. But as you can see, it has that timeline on it, which in poverty, uh, that is a critical mental model because our timeline might not be in our head if we're living in a day-to-day -day world. And as you can see, there has been past heart attacks. Now I'm 63, not, not me personally, but if I'm the patient. And, you know, here's my future story. And then the patient has to draw their heart strength. And what would happen with their heart strength if they followed the treatment plan? What happens if they don't? Um, I would also add, why, why would you want to be alive at the age of 70? What might happen then? They want to be around to see. Um, it could be something happening with their grandchild. I would build relationship pieces into that um, because I think that's really what probably motivates many people, uh, and especially those who are in poverty where relationships is very important. Our relationships are very important. I also wanted to uh, mention Advantage Dental in Oregon, which is a very large uh, dental group that has embedded bridges. And what they found is preventive health uh, is very difficult to sell to individuals living in maturity at the moment. And so they actually do motivational interviewing in the waiting room when someone is in pain because they're coming in to have a tooth extracted. They ask they come in and, and uh, Cindy will ask a question, would you like, would you be interested in hearing about how you can avoid this happening again? And that is the, the power of understanding that when I am in poverty perhaps or other environments where the moment is the most critical, it's not a problem until it's a problem. And that's the best time to capture me with uh, any kind of preventative care message. So. The strategies uh, are, are increasing and abundant, and health uh, sectors are sharing them with us. And um, we would just love everyone in the health sector to be a part of that community of practice and health, but just to health and healthcare. Thank okay. you. So as we have a few minutes left before we take some question and answers, Jan, Lucy, any final comments you'd like to provide? This is Lucy. I just want to make one other comment, and uh, it's a little bit of a tag on to something Terry just talked about. Having been uh, president and CEO of a safety net hospital, 
what I find really interesting right now is that as hospitals enter this particular age and this issue of fee for quality, it becomes very critical for us to be able to sit in another person's shoes. And I know for me institutionally, um, it was always a challenge being able to walk in another person's shoes and to do so without judgment. One of the keys to Bridges is that we create an environment of, of heightened awareness of where the other may be. And when we're able to do that, we're in a better position to create uh, heightened levels of trust between us and the people we're taking care of. People, what I've learned is that people don't just get up in the morning and say, I am really going to abuse myself, I'm going to abuse my children, I'm not going to take them to the clinic, or I'm not going to be on time for my appointment for the clinic, but there are reasons. And our capacity to sit through the learnings that come with bridges to health and get a sense of how our systems can work better. I know the other thing that really drives me is that there are so many really brilliant people and Bridges doesn't come in and say, here's a new program, and here's how you ought to do this. But it's, it's also an opportunity to get a new way of thinking about your new solutions. And that's what I'm excited about. I would like to spend a few minutes if there are questions, and I think um, Judy Judith Collins has a couple of them, but are, can any of you give examples of working with nurses, like in communities, community nurses, or in that area as far as Bridges to Health and Healthcare? Are you rolling that around in your mind? <laughs> well, you know, I think that community nurses uh, are part of the system that um, can benefit uh, as well uh, from just having a dialogue within their organization about, you know, what what is our focus, what is the focus of our patients, um, how do we build those relationships to mutual respect. I mean, this last piece that we still have up here, the mental model for progression of congestive heart failure, uh, perhaps a community nurse might have time uh, to, to really sit down with somebody and make sure that they understand the entire of what their disease means to them and what their treatment plan might mean to them. And that understanding of, as Lucy said, where that person is coming from. So the challenges of community nursing are, um, I'm sure, incredible. And uh, just like most of us, maybe there are more patients than there are time. But I really think that uh, we have to, as Ruby Payne always says, we have to look at the time that we spend now and what is the payoff for what we're doing now. So as in, most of our, as in most of our institutions, we have to look at how do we make changes at the individual level? What does our institution need to do to support those changes at the individual level? Um, if I need more time with a patient, um, is that allowable? Is that something that is seen as valuable? And also, how can the community um, have an impact uh, on 
assisting those community nurses with the resources that they might need to bring to the patient. So that Could I add lines. something to that, Terry sure, and Lynn? Absolutely. This is Lucy. Um, you know, we have a pretty strong Bridges community here in Memphis, uh, thanks to Jan and the Assisi Foundation. And uh, I made a presentation to the quality review and uh, upper executive uh, <clears throat> group at one of our hospitals here. And they have an initiative around um, getting mammograms for women in poverty. And you know that that is a national problem. And my sister happened to have been the person who headed up uh, the outreach piece of that. And so I had also gotten her to become a Bridges facilitator. And she was and she has also become a getting ahead in a getting by world facilitator. And she's been written up in the New York Times for the awesome work she's done with this initiative. But as I was speaking to that group of executives, as I began to use just that program as an example, the light bulbs in the room began to go on because they realized that while we had just sat at that table and talked about policy issues around making change, policy issues about quality, because remember, this was their quality group, and they were actually looking at what happened with the study they had where they found that uh, their cardiac patients, there was a discrepancy uh, between African-American patients who experienced uh, heart attack and white patients who experienced heart attack, and they found that African Americans died earlier um, and went home earlier and all of these kinds of things. But as I began to talk about bridges and what we know about generational poverty in relationship to their mammography experiences, as well as what was happening with those heart attacks, you could almost feel, it, you could palpate the change of attitude in the room and the moments where people were going, oh, okay, that is different. And my sister took all of this information and began to apply it to her strategies for getting people to come in for mammograms, and her own experience was tremendous. So. There is so much opportunity for just changing our own perspectives and what we know and understand about that other person's perspective in this dynamic of trying to create quality care at a decent cost. Thank you. We have another question. Uh, do most of the states involved have Medicaid expansion at work for government insurance? I will tell you, Tennessee does not. And, and actually, most of the states that don't are southern states that have opted out of Medicaid expansion. And there was a study released by Kaiser last week that indicated that uh, there were three points of significance for those southern states that, uh, of course, the poverty levels for the adults who would apply is uh, higher, that they are sicker, 
and that there are simply more of them. And that is our experience in Tennessee. So I have been, like, uh, in the, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, Lucy, I think what you're saying is, as people that are interested in bringing bridges to the healthcare sector, that may be a good research point for them to look into. It just might be. That means that those adults are still out there without care, and they're older adults. They're out there without care, and they're going to show up in your emergency room. And, uh, boy, that's hard. And people don't just, uh, just also, just because you get access to insurance doesn't mean that overnight your patterns of behavior are going to change because you may have gotten access to the payment for your care. But does that also mean at the same time that there's a doctor available to you? Does that also mean that you've got transportation? Does that also mean that the tyranny of the moment in your life stopped just because you got access to insurance? Thank you. That's a good point. Um, I would just like to say that, you know, having traveled throughout the United States, I've been out west now for a while uh, presenting, and um, it just seems like states are all over the place. I mean, some states that are not taking the Medicaid expansion do have uh, have provided some services um, in, in their own model. Others are still not even, you know, beginning to think about that. And then you have Oregon, which does have, the you know, the um, Medicaid expansion and an entire integrated health uh, plan throughout the state for combining um, physical health, uh, met, excuse me, behavioral health, and dental uh, in the same, um, you know, in the same services, service model or the integrated health model. So, you know, right now the U.S. is just all over the place. I did have a question about incorporating this information as people are out in their communities talking about bridges. And obviously, we love it when every sector comes to the table and they're engaged in the work. So as you begin to become familiar with Bridges to Health and Healthcare, then we welcome the opportunity for you to, to speak with those in your community about how the work could change in healthcare systems. I would say to you that we added a Bridges to Health and Healthcare certification. So any of you that are listening that are Bridges Out of Poverty certified trainers are welcome to come to that training to begin to understand the language of healthcare and how you can continue to use the work of Bridges but make it very relevant to that sector. And Lynn, this is Lucy. I want to add one other thing. Uh, as, as I am looking at and talking to people whom I know who work in healthcare, one of the big stressors right now is that nurses and people who are responsible for direct care giving are feeling very stressed right now because their organizations are having to respond in very interesting and aggressive ways to um, the demand for fee for quality. And so one of the things that might help is that when you go through bridges, you can have a better chance of success at implementing what are really fine ideas. You know right now uh, 
the, the patient experience is being uh, measured by Medicare, CMS, is measuring the patient care experience. There's lots of innovation out there for how things are changing. And communication, remember, on that research model that Jan showed, communication is a very big piece of bridges to health and health care. And communication is that big thing that CMS is measuring hospitals and caregivers on. Are you communicating? Are you communicating well? And they're not asking you. They're asking the patient. But how do you still maintain your capacity for compassion, for empathy, as you are required to communicate and still do all of the other things you're being asked to do? And this, I think, is a super value add for Bridges for anybody who's trying to balance what you're being asked to do and how you can get it done. Because you don't get up either and say, I'm going to go in and be mean to people today. So I, I think that is very important, Lynn. You know, I think what I'm hearing in some of the questions is, okay, it's such a huge topic. Where do you start? How, where do you start? Where it hurts the most. <laughs> I would say, this is Jan, I would say start from wherever you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look at your own individual sphere of influence and look at those that you can get to be champions within not only your locus of control but in that sphere. And, you know, you'll find very quickly um, to whom the work resonates. And so those are usually the people who will be your champions um, as you move forward. I find that many times people miss the point that the bridges lens of looking at environments and the hidden rules that come out of those lenses of um, how we view the world in terms of our own economic experience. But that lens and how we you know, look for the strengths of individuals and so forth is really the primary strategy. So I think educating yourself, um, being able to hear someone uh, when they're talking about their life and hear the hidden rules, hear how that comes out of the environment, and sharing that across a continuum uh, with other professionals in your system is where you begin. Um, so people sometimes go through the first day of business to health and healthcare and say, okay, great, now we need more strategies. And yes, we do, but let's not miss the fact that the first strategy is how we view things every day. And this gives you a different lens uh, to approach how you view things, and then it gives you more uh, innovation and ideas of where to go from there. But I do agree, you start with, with those who respond and are attracted to the work, and um, you begin wherever makes the most sense for you. I don't know if everyone has caught, but the, the Bridges to Health and Healthcare book is available on our uh, store from our website. And it is good even to do a book study. That may be another place to begin, that you have a number of people interested and you can do the book study and then you kind of decide who goes where and whose sphere of influence can become a part of a growing movement within your work. Any other questions that I'm missing? If not, I think we can head toward me again, thanking Jan and Lucy and Terry for your time.
and we really appreciate everyone joining us today.